Welcome to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast with Lauren Curry of Curry Financial Group Limited. In this podcast, we are focused on helping businesses set up and manage their group benefit plan to protect and assist their most valuable assets. Join us on this journey where Lauren explores ways to help you develop effective and cost-efficient strategies for your business. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Benefits of Knowledge with Lauren Curry. Today, Lauren has a guest on the show. That is Mike McClanahan. Mike is a VP of Partner Solutions with People Corporation. In his role, Mike strategizes and develops innovative group benefit solutions to help working Canadians and their families stay healthy, happy, and financially secure. Mike is also the president of TPAC, which stands for Third Party Administrator Association of Canada. TPAC strives to act as a collective voice to create a financially strong third-party administration industry in Canada. Mike can regularly be seen in the Port Coquitlam community because Mike spends his downtime volunteering for Motion Ball, an organization that raises awareness and funds for the Special Olympics Canada Foundation and exploring the outdoors of his home province of British Columbia, which I love British Columbia, Lauren. Lauren, thank you so much for bringing Mike on the show. Why'd you bring him on the show today? Well, uh... I think Mike's going to have a little different perspective. So we brought him on. I would like him to answer, you know, questions that clients ask me. Mm-hmm. So coming from the supplier side of the business, I think Mike's going to be able to offer some unique insights into those questions. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm here to learn from both of you again. I enjoy spending time with you, Lauren. Thank you so much for putting this podcast on. My pleasure. Uh, so, Mike, just uh, glad you're able to join us this morning. Um, I know you got a time difference out there, so it's a little earlier for you than it is for us. But uh, I, di- I didn't get I'm you up as early as Two coffees in, Lauren. Oh, right. double didn't, double didn't. caffeinated. So there you go. Uh, all right, good, good. So we're we're ready to go. We may have a hard time stopping you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so people might be a little confused. You you work for People Corporation now, and uh, I, of course that's recent, and you're going to explain that. But uh, people that aren't familiar with BBD, that's Benefits by Design, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that organization and your association with the People Corporation, just so people kind of understand where you're coming from? Yeah, the context, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I've been a managing partner with Benefits by Design for over 20 years. Um, And what Benefits by Design is, is referred to as a third-party administrator or TPA in our industry. Um, So we're not an insurer. Uh, We can't bear risk, as it were. But uh, think of us as a both a distribution arm for uh, group insurance products as well as a a back-end administrator. And what a third-party administrator essentially does is creates a best-in-class solution for uh, advisors and their customers. So the notion being that uh, depending on what the priorities and objectives of the customer is, uh, layered on again with the advice of uh, the consultant, is we can pick and choose solutions from various providers. Most, Most of the time we're talking insurers. But there's also additional like uh, employee assistance providers, et cetera, and come to the table with a solution that's more customized for the uh, the plan sponsor, ultimately. Um, and so we've been doing that uh, very happily and very successfully on a national basis for about 20 years, as I said. And then about four months ago, we joined a larger organization called People Corporation, who are also national in Canada, head office in Winnipeg. 
And, and really that is an opportunity to scale and being part of a larger dynamic organization allows us to sort of meet the needs of more working Canadians. And maybe just last thing I'll mention, our mission statement, which actually align very well with, with people corporations, um, is just that, to help working Canadians by promoting and protecting their health, wealth, and happiness. And again, we distribute those benefits by design through advisors like yourself across the country. Perfect. That's a great explanation. Uh, I can say I've probably dealt with BBD for, I'm thinking, close to 20 years. I think uh, I have mm. my first group there. So uh, uh, Mike and I have never met, met in person, but I've certainly uh, been on lots of webinars and uh, meetings and, and, and heard Mike speak, which is why I wanted to get him on the podcast. So We'll have um, to change that in-person thing in the near future, Lauren. Uh, yes, yes. As soon as we can get back on a plane. Actually, my exactly. wife is heading uh, out to BC in September. Unfortunately, I don't get to go. Uh, she's going with her sisters and her mom. So hmm. uh, actually, this podcast may come out while she's out there. So but anyway, next time I'll come. Um, we have a niece out there and uh, love to go out and do some hiking and, and, you know, BC is just a beautiful place. So great. Okay, great. So all right. So with BBD, it's a third party administrator. Uh, again, the whole idea of, you know, getting different benefits covered by different companies, trying to put all the best pieces together. Hopefully, everybody understands that. So what's your new role as you move forward? Now that people mm, corporation yeah, since joining is, people corporation? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, actually, it hasn't changed other than I have the opportunity to play in a larger sandbox. Um, okay. So my role uh, today, as it was before, is really split into two buckets. Um, one is uh, very much on the business development side broadly, and that's working with our um, around a thousand advisors across the country. Uh, again, more in a supportive um, education role, advocacy where it makes sense, um, as well as working with our very own uh, sales team. Um, and then the other one where I spend probably a little more than 50% of my time is at the industry level. So the introduction, there was a mention of uh, TPAC or the Third Party Administrators Association of Canada. So which is an industry association representing TPAs across the country. Um, and I've been in the president role there, as we said, for I keep losing track of time now, but I think it's close to 10 years. Um, very fulfilling role, great group of um, other organizations. And it's an interesting dynamic because on the one hand, there are times certainly where we are competitors to each other. Um, but that said, um, the work that we do within TPAC is very much about raising the bar of the industry as it relates to third-party administration. There's a fair amount of uh, government regulatory work, important stuff. Um, needless to say, because we are part of insurance and financial services, um, it's a, as it should be, um, a highly regulated industry. So you know, a decent amount of that work is dealing with government um, as well as other uh, industry stakeholders and so on. Uh, there's a few other industry associations that I'm involved with, including one called KALU, which is a conference of advanced life underwriting um, and advocates, Lauren, that you'd be familiar with, which is more about yes. um, the Financial Advisors Association of Canada, um, et cetera. But um, what I as I say, thoroughly enjoy is it's not just, you know, sort of the tactical work regulatory or otherwise we do there, but, you know, the opportunity it gives me to meet other people with a like mindset, you know, which again really does, I think, boil back to that 
you know, how can we make the the offerings, the protection, et cetera, for Canadians, um, you know, better, you know, um, in terms of protecting them and uh, against financial hardships and so on. Right. Sounds sounds very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the TPAC thing uh, has got to be very interesting working with so many others in the industry. Um, I, I know you already deal with what is about 4,000 uh, client like customers through there and a thousand advisors like myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but dealing, you know, again, there, I find we have competitors in the business. You and I are both members of CGIB, which is our, our uh, right. group benefit association. Um, actually, a little heads up, Dave Patriarch is going to be coming on uh, and talking a little bit in our next uh, podcast, I believe it is. And that's going to be tied back to BBD and, and something you guys were working on. So I'm going to keep everybody in suspense on that. Uh, they're going to have to tune in next month to uh, to find out what that's about. So uh, the, uh, I guess, you know, you're, you're trying to work on making things better for everyone. So what do you see, you know, both as the challenges and the opportunities in your market space to enable this innovation which again, we're going to talk about more later, uh, and better outcomes for employer employers and employees. Yeah, yeah, good question. And for some context, so when you mentioned that we um, do administration, servicing, and so on for uh, now, I think this is probably my notes to you were a bit outdated. I think it's about forty four hundred uh, now. So yay, remember. Wow. Um, great. But uh, most of those customers fall into what we would think of as the, the SMB, like the small mid sized business. Um, you know, for the most part, let's say under 100 employees. Um, and one of the interesting things you find about those types of employers is often they don't have, you know, sort of internal robust HR departments. Um, you know, using our organization as a comparison, it wasn't until I think we reached um, about 50 employees that we actually hired a, you know, what you'd think of as a dedicated HR specialist. You know, before that, it was more, you know, somebody who, you know, well, you're the office manager, so you get that job kind of thing. Um, yes. So I only bring that up as sort of acknowledging, and I'm assuming you would come across this with your your clients as well, that, um, you know, as a result, they don't necessarily have the same expertise when it comes to sort of these HR issues, how they dovetail, you know, with benefits design and so on and so forth. Um, and so the result of that, but this also amplifies the value of the advice that folks like yourself bring to the table is, you know, it, that sort of kiss principle I find in our market space becomes, um, very important, you know, the keeping it simple. I won't add the final S. Um, (laughs) and so, you know, they have similar issues as the large employers, but, the ability to execute sometimes on like a complex drug formulary, as an example, um, can be a challenge because they may not have the same internal communication um, you know, channels and all these sorts of things. Um, so, so that can be one of the, the challenges. From an opportunity standpoint, though, too, I find that those smaller employers can be much more nimble and dynamic in terms of their decision making. Um, so as much as, you know, we don't get involved in the advice giving, we, we leave that to the advisor community, but I've seen and heard of situations of larger employers that, you know, the, the execution and decision-making can get bogged down in, you know, big committees and oversight and governance and all this, which can be important, but it's just 
challenging when it comes right. to you know implementing things. Um, so that's kind of the, I would say, sort of the pro and con. Right, right. Yeah, I'll, I can uh, confirm, okay, the usually the bigger the company I'm dealing with, the longer it takes to get anything done. Um, having said that, though, as you did mention, um, you know, uh, hopefully a lot of our listeners on the podcast are actually uh, HR managers. Uh, we're really trying to help get the word out to them, help educate them about group benefits. So when you have an HR manager, you know, it might be slower for things to happen, but the communication to the employees, I believe, is better in the long run. So like you said, there's pros and cons. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, as we all know, despite their clinical benefits, more and more high-cost drugs have been coming into the market and stressing the affordability of drug and health plans for employers. Uh, are you seeing employers reacting by implementing more drug maximums? Um, yep. Um, we actually took a look at that question a number of months ago by doing a, a bit of an internal analysis of our, our block of, let's say, those 4,000 plus um, employers. And if I look at it, let's say, on a 10-year span, so say current versus 2011. Um, so if we go back 10 years ago, the number of plans that we were administering that had unlimited, so no caps on their, their drug coverage, was about 63%. And 10 years later, that number has dropped to 49%. So a fairly substantial increase in the number of employers who have chosen to put in a drug cap. Um, what's interesting also, and this is probably the part that surprised me a little bit more, is uh, what kind of caps they're putting in. Um, so if you'd asked me before doing the analysis, you know, where would I have suggested most of that went? I probably would have said a $10,000 cap. Um, what's interesting though is the 10,000 stayed the same. So 10 years ago, 20% of the employers had a $10,000 drug cap. It's actually exactly the same today. Um, most of it went to a $5,000 cap. So 3% 10 years ago had a $5,000 cap. That number has increased to 15%. Um, so it's it's interesting, you know, again, every situation um, is going to be different as to why they've done that. But the, and you can probably speak to this too, Lauren, my sense would be that the main theme would be one of affordability, you know, so whereby if they have been getting hit with some larger drug costs um, and then facing some big increases in their premiums, you know, they probably said, well, what are our options, you know, and yeah, the it's a bit of a blunt object or strategy, but it doesn't make it bad um, to then say let's put in a cap and sort of cap our risk and exposure as well. The ultimate challenge, as you would know, is you're now transferring that risk onto the employee and their dependents to some degree as well. That's yeah. So a hundred hundred percent, what you're saying um, is funny. When I was preparing for this, I. I didn't actually get you know my list out and, and go through it, but uh, $5,000 is definitely the drug cap that if my clients are having a drug cap, that's, that's the number, hmm. right? And, but I would guess in my block, maybe 10 to 15% of, of all my clients would have a drug cap at all. Right. Um, and, 
With the, and, the and rest it, being unlimited sort of thing for the most part? The rest, yeah, just un, unlimited. Um, you know, there's other some other controls, of course, there, but, uh, but basically unlimited. And the clients that have the drug caps generally are, I would say, more, more my smaller clients. And it's strictly, it's an affordability thing, right? Can they afford if... There's a large dollar claim. Of course, we have stop loss and stuff, which that's going to be my next question. But you know, can they afford to have that big bump in uh, in their premiums? And and when they say no, they can't. They have a certain budget. This is what we have to work with. That's generally how we ended up going to that five thousand dollar drug cap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, as I kind of alluded to, um, I stop loss, whatever you want to call the stuff, but. So pool, what about pooling levels? Okay, maybe you can explain. Um, that's a little hard sometimes explaining to my clients. So what's happening mm -hmm. with the pooling levels? And what's the year over year trends in pooling levels looking like and their pricing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and good point, Lauren, in terms of, you know, often to employers, again, depending on their level of sophistication and knowledge, they may not understand or appreciate. It's almost like there's insurance within their insurance. Um, yep. and, and this is you and I both know pertains primarily to the extended health programs. Um, yes. and you know, the notion that, um, a small amount of your health premium is being set aside to cover these sort of really high dollar risk items. Um, historically, um, and you and I, I know both been in the business for, for some time that was probably, you know, decades ago, more of for things like travel coverage. You know, where, you know, very infrequent events, but the dollar figure could be significant. And over time, high cost drugs have really overtaken uh, the, the main cost of pooling and stop loss is just the, the industry term for what is pooling. And uh, I won't d dig into it, but there's been various industry efforts well intended to try to figure out how to, and I don't think anybody can solve it per se, but sort of. Um, even it out or smooth, you know, the the adjustments a little bit. But despite that, the reality is, you know, pharma, and it's not a bad thing, but it, it creates a friction point of, of sustainability and affordability of these plans. Um, pharma has invested a lot of money and will continue to into what are sort of generally referred to as specialty or biologic drugs. And many of them have enormous positive impacts for the individuals suffering from various um, illnesses and things, but they come with these enormous price tags. Um, you know, for example, I, I was actually speaking with um, a fella yesterday who's sort of quasi government in Quebec and he heads up the organization that works with the government to figure out sort of the pooling for, for the government plans. Yes. Um, and he said the biggest claim that they are covering right now is a $2.2 million annual. Now, it's a big outlier, right? But yes. just to give some context that those sorts of things are are out there. Um, the other one that's coming down the pipe more as a class um, is oncology or cancer drugs. But that will be like you can take as a pill, you know, as opposed to um, receiving treatment in hospital, um, you know, chemo, et cetera. Which, again, apparently can have incredibly positive effects, far fewer side effects for people suffering from these illnesses. But the big challenge becomes if those medications, which with a high cost, 
start being administered outside of the hospital environment, then they become the responsibility of private plans instead of public health care for the most part. Um, right. So these are all sort of the cost inputs that are driving this, this sort of friction. Um, if we look at our block as, you know, sort of the trend, as you said, um, I'll use just a five-year um, sort of set of analysis. And uh, a typical stop loss within these programs, as you would know, would say, if a claimant has health claims in excess of $10,000 in a year, then the insurer is going to pool above the 10000 And so within our block, over the past five years, we've seen a uh, 115% increase in the number of claimants. So the number of people today is up over double um, from what it was five years ago who are breaching, if I can put it that way, that $10,000 um, per year. Yeah, that's, it, that's surprising, isn't it? That's a big number. It certainly has a trend line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's not quite the same percentage increase in the actual dollar exposure, but it's more of an indication of, you know, there are more of these drugs and there are more people who are using them for the various therapies. Um, and, and again, it's, it's not necessarily a bad news story because think of it this way. Imagine an individual who was suffering from a chronic illness of some kind um, that without this therapy, Perhaps they are on disability, you know, or government support if their employer doesn't provide disability coverage. So would you make that trade between, you know, having to pay for the high cost drug um, uh, versus, again, them not receiving that because they can't afford it um, and therefore being in a situation almost societally where they are, you know, not because they don't want to, but they can't contribute you know, et cetera, because of their debilitating illness. Exactly. Thing, and the couple of the big ones that I see in my plans is going to be arthritis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is huge. Uh, Crohn's and colitis. You know, there's there's quite a bit of that we see. And then I guess one of the bigger ones that come in that that are at least short term. Uh, there's a cure for hepatitis C and. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's anywhere from what eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Just to give people again some ideas, that, you know, they're not all million dollar claims, but if you get a whole bunch of claims that are forty, sixty five, a hundred thousand, uh, that stuff adds up, right? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, the, the Hep C one you bring up, Lauren, is a <clears throat> it's a really interesting one from sort of a private versus public policy responsibility. And again, as you know, one of the challenges is healthcare. We're in the middle of an election right now. I'm not going to say anything yes. political. Um, but, you know, for every election, healthcare is always this sort of hot potato issue. Um, but regardless, it is a provincial responsibility. So I'm based in, in British Columbia, as noted at the beginning. And BC is one of the provinces that has, you know, sort of a broad-based pharmacare program. Um, and that hepatitis C drug, the, the pharmacare program in BC, not immediately, they had to do some analysis and efficacy work and so on, but they ultimately said, we are going to cover that drug, right? So for the most part, it became a public responsibility cost-wise and the rationale, which I wholeheartedly agree with is they looked at it and said, well, 
the downstream impact of curing this disease or not curing it where a therapy is available would have a significant impact on public health care you know in terms of people having to go to the hospital et cetera, et cetera. right let alone yes. it's just good for these people if we can cure them of this um, this illness um, but that wasn't necessarily the decision in every province you know at the end of the day because of this sort of patchwork um, but just an interesting example Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because we we don't have that here in Ontario. Uh, mm. <clears throat> I can tell you, I got a whole bunch of group clients that uh, wish that drug was covered by the province because uh, it's uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's created some uh, unpleasant renewals. So I'll just put it that way. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, all right. That's um, you know that's interesting. So just kind of changing directions here for those that aren't necessarily working directly on group renewals <clears throat> excuse me again you know we're we're hoping we've got the a lot of the hr managers finance people and business owners out there but not everybody works on the group renewals so they may not be aware of why we're seeing trend factors quoted in drug trend reports like those from uh, esc telus imc they're far lower than when I take a renewal in and I show a, you know, a plan sponsor what we're saying, the trend and inflation factors are going to be on their health care. Uh, can you explain some of the reasons why there's such a difference? Sure, yeah. And some of this will be kind of the, I'm speculating, so you know, I'm not okay. referring to a report, but you know, to use some recent stats, and won't worry about who these organizations are, but you know, generally what they're seeing internally in their data would say that the annual increase in drug, and this is again, mostly on the drug side, um, drug costs is running five, 6%, something along those lines. Um, and as you know, Lauren, when you um, deliver a, a typical renewal, um, it varies by insurer and a little bit by province and so on, but you know, minimum, I would say 10% is what is typically embedded more commonly, probably pushing up into you know, close to 15% in some cases. Um, so I, I think you'd need to get an actuary or an underwriter on here to give any sort of technical answer to this. But what I believe happens here for the most part is it, it's, it's kind of like the cell phone thing a little bit with companies that, you know, they might treat a new customer a little better than an existing customer. And yeah. So the aspect is, as you would know, there and it comes in waves and cycles, but there's often very aggressive quoting that goes on from insurers to acquire new business, right? Even to the degree of, like I would say, sometimes consciously underpricing the business. So how does, and insurers aren't created to lose money. Again, I'm not trying to paint the insurers as bad in this because you know, our, our entire industry has a, a role to play in the delivery side of this. Um, but as a result, to balance the books, as it were, so if you are underpricing a lot of your new business, but you want your block to still be, you know, I'd say onside and somewhat profitable, well, there's only one other place to get that money from. Um, and I think it's also a recognition that, you know, not all of the advisor community is comfortable with sort of positioning value over price um, to some degree, um, <laughs> other than little shout out to Dave Patriarch you're mentioning, the CGIB folks. Um, yep. And so it's very common. And we see this as a supplier where, you know, some advisors, they they never accept sort of the first um, renewal proposal, um, even if 
it appears based on the numbers very fair and justified, etc. So again, I think there's a little bit of this, um, I hate to call it padding, but I don't have a better word. Um, of, and one place you can pad a little bit is in these trend factors and then use that as sort of a bit of a negotiation lever um, as well. So I think that's why for the most part, there's something of a disconnect between what the data would say and then what you see um, offered out through renewals. Right. Okay. That, yeah, that's a really big topic. Um, actually, if our listeners have, remember, or if they haven't seen it, if they went back to episode 10 of our podcast, I did a whole podcast on marketing your group and a big part. So when I'm delivering a renewal, um, I do the mathematical calculations of what I feel the numbers need to be based on a fair renewal. Okay, uh, we don't like changing carriers if we don't need to, as long as there's no service issues, that type of thing. I understand insurance companies need to, you know, they have to be profitable or they're not going to be in business. None of us are. But in marketing, um, it really, I guess, upsets me maybe <laughs> if you see somebody in, in my role, say, market a program and they're not you know, they get an insurance company to give them a quote where the premiums being collected for health or dental are not enough to cover what last year's claims were, right? Right. Um, yeah. and, and that's exactly what we run into. That is one of the biggest conversations that I have with my clients, whether it's at a renewal or, you know, if we're, you know, if we're coming into a, a brand new client, we're doing a marketing, you know, marketing does have to be done, but... I really think it's so important that the people in our industry educate the clients, the people that are paying the bills on if you take that bottom line dollar, you know, quote, what's happening to you next year? Because I can tell you, as the advisor, I don't want to be the guy delivering a renewal. Oh, I just saved you 25% this year, but I'm delivering a renewal next year that's going up 40%. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you alluded to in that previous podcast, Lauren, but you know, too, like even if a, a customer said, well, what's the downside, right? Why, you know, if a big insurance company is willing to subsidize my benefits program, why wouldn't I accept that? Um, but as you know, there are, you know, other than the disruption factor, which can be very real for plan sponsors and their, their employees, oh, um, yes. is there are, I won't call them hidden costs, but there are costs of switching. But again, I would think you, you would have gone into that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we did. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Okay. It, again, the whole idea of having Mike join us today is to get, you know, kind of get that perspective from, I don't know if I like to say the other side, not where we're competing or anything, but, you know, just that different point of view, because, you know, I come on here and say things like, don't take the lowest quote, make sure you, you know, you check the numbers first. So it's nice to hear you're, you're kind of feeling the same side, same thing from your side of things. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we, we've never, again, and then we'll, we'll move off this topic, but, um, and I don't want to say we're all lily white and pure that, you know, we've never been caught in that trap a little bit ourselves, but you know, we're, we're not a big insurance company with, you know, these huge reserves, et cetera. Um, right. so, you know, and I would say generally this is a, a position of third party administrators, um, that, so, you know, we have to make our money based on value. Right. Because right. we don't make our money on, you know, because we're not bearing risk 
on being a beneficiary of the risk pools, as it were. So therefore, in a pure sense, it forces us in a good way to, you know, focus on, you know, that that value side. Because if we play that game of just discounting price and and jacking up the rates, the customers and their advisors should punish us at the end of the day. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, okay. So we'll move on. Um, Again, referring back here, our seventh episode of the Benefits of Knowledge podcast, we actually talked about virtual healthcare. Okay. COVID has certainly thrown us all more into the digital world. Um, I live in it now, it seems. I don't go out in the road anymore. Has it accelerated innovation and adoption by employers and plan members in the health space? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it certainly, you know, poured a lot of fuel on on that out of necessity. Um, and I'll, I'll start with a bit of an example and a context on, on public health care, um, which is, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners now have had you know, doctor's appointments that were either digital or by phone or what have you. Like, you know, quick example for me is um, I uh, do some of that outdoor stuff I love doing that you referred to before. Part of it is mountain biking. And yes. uh, I had a little bit of a crash. Oh, it's probably closing in on six months ago where I, I tweaked my knee and it's been giving me grief, etc. So my public health care experience there was, you know, a Zoom call with my doctor who had me, you know, sort of try to move about, et cetera, um, followed up by, you know, a requisition of an x-ray, followed up um, not that long ago with a, a chat with him just over the phone of him looking at the x-ray results and then suggesting right. some, you know, stretching and exercise and, and whatnot. But um, so, you know, not once during that process did I, you know, have to book an appointment, well, booked appointment, but not have to figure out getting to his office, waiting in his office, you know, et cetera. Um, and it's interesting, a recent survey that the Canadian Medical Association did of, you know, a, a set of Canadians was that uh, they said 91% of patients were satisfied using virtual care. And 46% of those people said they would prefer a virtual method um, as a first point of contact, at least with their doctor moving forward. And then again, another high percentage, over two thirds, um, said they're in favor of continuing with this sort of telemedicine approach, even after the pandemic is over. So I, I think generally Canadians have found that that interaction, admittedly that was public health care, you know, with the system as it were, has been generally pretty favorable. Um, I think there will need to be some review and assessment of effectiveness, you know, because I think a lot of this understandably during COVID has been driven out of necessity, um, right. not out of, you know, is this a going to lead to better outcomes um, for those individuals? So, so that same kind of discussion now flows over to the public, or sorry, the private healthcare space. And I, you know, and you'd have some some sort of experience on this too. I, I would say generally what we found, and and I think good initially, that the providers, insurers, and otherwise have done a bit of a, you know, what can we bolt into the programs that's digital, right? And yes. it was a bit of a like. I always like using the grade eight dance analogy, um, which is if you were like me, you know, you were the kids leaning against the wall. You weren't the first person to run out and ask somebody to dance, but nobody wanted to be that last person, um, you know, leaning against the wall. So there was this flurry of activity, you know, of partnerships with these digital providers and, you know, announcements saying it's now, 
you know, included with your benefits program, et cetera. And, right. and even though often they might be positioned as, you know, no charge, that's I'm not saying they're lying, but you know, there's a cost and there should be, um, to some of these, um, programs. Um, so that's been sort of what's happening over the last couple of years. And again, very much accelerated by, by COVID, um, and mental health, as you'd know, is probably a big space where that's happening. Um, and I think that's especially one where reviews and assessment need to look at effectiveness. Um, so there's something, for example, called um, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which yeah. is, is a well-founded scientific method for helping people with um, various mental health issues. And so this ICBT, which is you know, the virtual side of it is really been developing significantly. And I think one of the ways that our industry can improve some of these, and again, I'm not a clinician, so let me throw that disclaimer out there. Um, But generally what I've noticed is the approach has been kind of blanket, like, you know, do your best to have all plan members be aware of these services. And what I think could be more interesting, again, this is assuming appropriate use of data and privacy and consent and all those types of things, if there's any lawyers listening. Um, but would be, so imagine this scenario. Imagine a plan member is getting a first start prescription for a mental health drug, okay? Um, right. And again, let's also assume that the pharmacological um, solution is is a part of the, the system. Wouldn't it be interesting to be able to message that patient and plan member sort of basically in that moment while they're dealing with us saying we've completed your prescription etc and whatever other messaging is needed there did you know that as part of your benefits program you have access to these other services which may be complementary you know whether that be counseling or cbt or what have you um, and we didn't and here's your path to access um, as a result. And, and there are, like we're doing an experiment right now with uh, an advisor, uh, a large customer of his, and um, the service providers to try and enable that type of um, outreach and then to measure and see, was it effective and so on and so forth. Wow, that's uh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, this, is, this has been great, Mike. So I, I think... You know, we did, we did a podcast uh, a while ago on, you know, virtual health and stuff and talked about a lot of, you know, kind of the same things that you're saying here where people were mm-hmm. very pleased with it. Anybody I've talked to that's used, you know, the virtual healthcare side of things definitely, um, you know, are, are preferring to deal that way, like you said, on the first contact. So uh, yeah. I, can, I, can I, I leave agree. you with one, one, one humorous yeah. story? Certainly which you can always edit out afterwards if you want to, um, <laughs> which is um, this sort of virtual and telemedicine is starting to go into areas that I think people will go, really, you can do that virtually? And, and the one experience yeah. I had was uh, physiotherapy of all things. So um, this organization, they're actually called Physio with a Z. Um, right. And they've been starting to grow in terms of their you know, penetration in Canada and so on. And when they first came on my radar, which is pre-COVID, it's probably a little over two years ago. You know, they explained how the service works, et cetera. And I remember saying to the fellow, I said, well, there's no better way to sort of evaluate effectiveness and all this sort of stuff than 
you know, having a live example. And it was shortly after Christmas and I'd been at a customer um, Christmas function up in Kelowna. Um, again, pre-COVID folks. Um, and we happened to find ourselves late at night at a sort of country and Western bar. And around midnight, this mechanical bull emerges from the floor. <laughs> and I just have to be in pretty close proximity. So, you know, perhaps a little bit of liquid courage, you know, sign the waiver form. Of course, didn't read it. Right. Um, and I think it was the first person to jump on the, the mechanical bull. I didn't come close to eight seconds. And uh, I think it was, you know, a couple of days later, I was going, oh boy, my shoulder is really sore. Um, so I'd wrenched it somehow. So that was actually how I ended up, you know, using this physio, um, sort of virtual service, which, which was for that injury that I had effective at the end of the day. Great. Great. Well, it's, it's, it's funny when I first heard of that stuff coming out, I'm thinking, well, I've taken physio and, and stuff. And I was wondering how they did it virtually, but, uh, that's, that's good to hear that they, uh, you know, it still works that way. I guess they're showing you the exercise and, and then you can do it, right? So, good. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the, the one thing I found interesting about, I've certainly, because of my clumsiness at mountain biking, for the most part, had plenty of visits to the bricks and mortar physiotherapy over the years. Um, but the one piece I would say that was interesting, and I think a positive, so they, the virtual has lower cost of delivery and these sorts of things. And they admit there are certain um, injuries that you, you have to go to a bricks and mortar physiotherapy. Um, but the accountability piece was interesting. So for anybody who has used a physiotherapist in the past and you go for your next week visit, et cetera. And what is, what is it? The physiotherapist always asks you, you know, when you, you come in, you know, they say, have you been doing your exercises? And of course I kind of go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like with the dentist, have you been flossing? Yeah, um, yeah, right. Too much information, but yeah. Whereas, so the digital delivery, they know, right? So because, and I would actually get this, I would get little friendly reminder pings from the platform saying, hey, we miss you. We notice you haven't been in to do your exercises for the past two days. Is there anything we can help? So, so it has that little bit of digital oversight, you know, trying to use it in a positive encouragement way, but you know, they, they would know whether people are actually doing their exercises or not. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's definitely uh, going to be a bonus over, uh, you're not going to go to the physio, uh, clinic every day. So that's great. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Um, I think we're going to be out of time here. So I thank you very much, Mike. This is, uh, this has been excellent. I think our uh, listeners are going to get a lot out of today's podcast. And uh, I thank you very much for joining us this morning. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Mike, fantastic stuff. I, I appreciate you being on the show as well, so thank you for being here. Lauren, um, of course, a big thank you to you for bringing Mike on the show. Before I go into the closing, Lauren, I know you do these for educational purposes, and you, you pointed to a few podcasts that you did in the past um, and actually even gave out the number, so I'm hoping the listener uh, cues in on that and goes back and listens to those. But for those that have been listening and are saying, you know what, I need to have a conversation with Lauren because I love the stuff that he's putting out as far as all the education that he does, and I could use some help with my company and, and my benefits, uh, remind him again how they get a hold of you, please. Okay. Uh, well, you can pick the phone up give us a call on our toll-free number, one 445 4424 
um, that gets you right into the office here. Uh, otherwise, you can pop me an email. It's lauren at currayfinancialgroup.com. Of course, happy to answer questions on any of these topics. And yeah, if you, uh, if you need help with your plan, we're more than happy uh, to do an analysis for you. Absolutely. Again, Lord, thank you so much for today. And our last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast with Lauren Curry. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Lauren comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Curry Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. 